Hello, I'm Rachel Barenbaum, author of the novel Atomic Anna, and you're tuned in to Check This Out. We are a podcast coming to you from the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire, and we're here to bring you books from new and diverse authors that we think you should be reading and talking about. If you love these books as much as we do, and we know you will, you should go to your local library or come to the Howe and check them out or go to your local bookstore and buy a copy. Today, we are wrapping up our spring series with the absolutely phenomenal new book, Chain Gang All-Stars. I am so excited to bring this book to you and this amazing, amazing author. We have Nana Kwame Ajabrenya here to talk about this unbelievable book. Nana, hello, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me, it's my pleasure. We're so excited to have you. Um, I literally have read this book two times through, could not put it down either time. Congratulations. Uh, what a debut novel. Thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. It's been um, incredible uh, seeing the book out in the world. I actually just came back from tour. I've been in over the last 20 days, I've had 19 flights. So it's been a pretty wild, pretty wild couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, you have just exploded out of the box here. Seriously. Unbelievable. Thank you so much. Yeah. So for people who are not familiar with you yet, and there are some people <laughs> you might not. There are many people. There are very many people. <laughs> I'm going to read your bio now and introduce you. So Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya is the New York Times bestselling author of Friday Black. His work has appeared in the New York Times Book Review, Esquire, The Paris Review and elsewhere. He was a National Book Foundation 5 under 35 honoree, a winner of the pen. Uh, John Stein Book Award and the William Saronian International Prize for Writing and the finalist for the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize for the Best First Book, among many, many other honors. Raised in Spring Valley, New York, he now lives in the Bronx. Whew. And your publicist sent me a brand new copy of your book for this interview, of course, with your huge Reading with Jenna new sticker on there. Congratulations. Right. Front pages of the New York Times Book Review everywhere. How's it feeling? It is. Um, it's a lot. You know, like I said, for the, I've been literally I haven't slept in my bed as all this has happened until yesterday night. And I've just got a chance to more than any of the sort of like awards or paper stuff, which is awesome. Uh, getting a chance to be with people in like Tulsa, Oklahoma, who like the book. Or I was in Boise, Idaho two days ago and um, having speaking to people about abolition and the work and having them you know, resonate with the message, but also the writing. It, it just feels, um, I feel extremely humbled and extremely grateful. That's amazing. So can you tell us, um, give us your pitch, sort of what is Chain Gang All-Stars about? Yeah, Chain Gang All-Stars is about an imagined future in which convicted wards of state can opt out of a sentence of at least 25 years and participate in death matches. Uh, if they choose to do this, they call the links on circuit in this particular sort of blood sport. And if they survive three years, and this is the draw, they might get clemency or they'll be freed. And the book is really focusing in particular on two women who are also partners who are in this system, Lorena Thurwar and the Hamara Stacker, also known as Hurricane Stacks. And it's about uh, Thurwar's last couple of weeks in this program. Right, so she has lived through death matches for three years, right? And she has- Yeah, she's- thrived basically she's become one of the best loved most 
uh, most deadly uh, members of this blood sport. Yeah. So um, one of the the incredible things about this book is you've set up these these games, right? Games to the death. Um, but they are a reality TV show. And so the entire country watches as they go into this arena, right, to fight to the death. So um, can you talk a little bit about the reality show part of it and why you decided to add that in there? Yeah, so there's Chain Gang All-Stars like death matches, which is like the fighting portion. And there's another like uh, sibling show called uh, Link Life, where you're basically watching them all the time and they're on the road. They have these like marching periods and then they have a campsites where they stay and so you can tune in to watch that and I wanted to do that because I wanted a place for the characters to be human and just be themselves and not even though they are under the thumb of uh, this oppressive system I wanted them to also be um, sort of almost exercising their right to have care for each other and give us access, give the viewer access to see this, even in this bloody context. So, and I also want to, to sort of demonstrate just how much we make commodities out of people's lives and people just doing the, their own thing and how that is sort of like the crux of the reality TV thing right now. So it ended up just feeling like useful narratively in terms of full of further developing the characters as opposed to just presenting them as executors of violence. And um, it also sort of seemed to, to me to mirror the model we have now generally with um, the sort of all access 24 seven celebrity culture thing we got going on. Yes. And also um, it was like sort of putting a polish on something that was horrific, right? By making it popular, this sport, right? It, when it, it shouldn't even be happening. And yet people, you know, are installing these systems around their house so they can watch it in 3D everywhere they go in their house. Right. I mean, you also tap into that need to be a voyeur. Right. And to sort of normalize something horrific. Yeah. And how uh, by the normalizing of something horrific, you can profit off of it <laughs> and how these um, entities are really interested in profit above all else. And that's really what enables all these type of devices to be made and all these other type of sponsorships to be included in the programming. Uh, it really ends up being about money and not human life, which I think is, again, a really important part of the conversation in our actual lived life, considering the carceral state and prisons. Yeah. Um, so I just want to quickly tell um, listeners who haven't read the book yet that one of the ways that you show this sort of profiting off of human life, right, and these horrific things is you have these women will step, right, or two people will step into the um, the arena to battle. One of them has to die, and yet they're covered in logos, Right. And the, the companies who are supposedly sponsoring them, right, get the the top views or whatever of what's happening. And someone has to die. And yet it's all about the commercialism in that moment. Yeah, absolutely. They're they're walking, breathing commercials for these different companies and the companies just feel excited to have the opportunity because like any publicity is great publicity. Whatever people are watching, we have this attention economy. And so um, they sort of hitch their wagon to different characters and almost yeah, all the characters in this book are connected to some brand because of their popularity. Yeah, very clearly, this is a book commenting on, um, right, the prison system and uh, punishment, right? And, um, and I wanted to just ask you sort of, why is that the focus and why are you shining the light there? I know you've answered this a million times, but I have listeners, right, who are just being introduced to the book. And so I would love to hear you talk That's about great. that for us. It's an important, it's, I mean, it's a really important question. I think that generally, my first book is a short story collection called Friday Black. 
And I think in writing that book and just curating that the stories that made it into the book and thinking about what I really cared about as an author, I felt more and more like the different systems like trick us into stepping on each other's heads basically was really what I was just interested in. The different systems that make us feel okay with um, thinking of each other as less than human. And so I, I, so that first book deals with hyper-consumerism and racism and all these sort of different subjects. But this, this book, which deals with the carceral state in prisons, as I did more and more research, I started to feel like not only do prisons allow me to speak to all these issues because we know that our justice system um, explicitly targets people of color, that is to say it is racist. We also know that um, the LGBTQIA community is specifically targeted by the, our carceral state empirically that is and we also know that empirically the trans community is particularly um, targeted so that's something that is important but even even beyond that i think that fundamentally the carceral state uh cuts uh the knees our ability our ability as a people on a community level on a society level on a government level on a nation level it cuts at our at the knees our ability to respond compassionately to people in need so whether it's a people who are suffering from the disease of addiction, rather than um, really trying to think about that problem, which is systemic and has so many so many issues in so many different parts of our culture. We individualize and criminalize certain behaviors associated with it, rather than um, find real ways to build the infrastructure to respond, infrastructure and resources and the heart to respond meaningfully and compassionately to mental health crises. We individualize and criminalize that, that issue as well. And with poverty, which we know is systemic, again, we have the ability to individualize and criminalize that, that issue because we can just take individuals, throw them in a cage and not deal with the systemic issue of poverty, which is rampant in this country. And so that, 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 the, the fundamental existence of prisons to me is like a huge hindrance is in, in our inability to grow a true moral ethical backbone as a people. And I, for me, that felt important because it's right in line with what I think I'm interested in as a writer. I also loved how you put in, you did such an incredible amount of research and you put in statistics and information and lots of uh, footnotes throughout, right? And for example, yeah. I think you said at one point, you know, was it three to 5% or 100,000 people in the current prison population are innocent, might not have had attorneys right, who couldn't defend them or wrong place, wrong time, but they're innocent. And you have you know, information like that throughout the book in the middle of all of these scenes. Yeah, and that supports the narrative. And because sometimes that sounds like, wow, that's is that a little, is that a lot? But it, what I hope is always happening is when that's paired with the, the lot, the lived experiences of the characters, it starts to feel like really heavy. <laughs> on tour, I said I've been on tour for <laughs> three weeks now. In Miami, I got a chance to link up with a, a guy named DT, spent three years in prison, wrongfully accused. And so it's even for, for me through doing the work and being exposed to these spaces, some of these statistics become, that's a human being, that's a person. The three to 5% for some of us feels sort of very theoretical and almost abstract. But when you think about the thousands and thousands of people who are being crushed by this thing, it starts to get really heavy. And so, um. I, I I had I felt I needed to include the footnotes to add this important context, but I also because the book is violent, I wanted it to be impossible to divorce the action or engagement or 
quote unquote fun of the book from the real life horror that is the American carceral state. Yeah. And you bring that home very well. I thought it was um, a brilliant use of craft, right? To use the footnotes to put in, you know, here's this horrific, you know, statistic, 100,000 people are innocent and they're in prison. And here, let's humanize that and right and show two people who are in this situation. Thank you so much. And it's, it's, it's tough because, and I said this before as well, like footnotes are not the sexiest thing to put in a book, you know? And for me, I actually didn't like them. Uh, to me, they disrupt the fictive dream and maintaining the fictive dream was always like my big thing. Mm-hmm. Thinking about like the John Gardner art of fiction. I remember being younger and wanting to be a writer and like just keep them in this fictive dream. And footnotes almost necessarily disrupt that dream, but it felt useful because I just couldn't have that context be um, ignored. And also, I tried my best to be really creative with the employ of the footnotes and have them be done in a way I hadn't actually seen exactly before. Yeah, which you did because some of them were about the fiction and the fictional characters. And then some were real true to life statistics or information about the current prison system. Yes. But also I thought what you did really well was you also said, okay, so we have a lot of problems with our prison system, right? And it is not working. It is broken. But we also have some people who have done bad things. Right. And you've said, and so what do you yes. do? And there's this question of, you know, what do we do? And one of your characters actually um, says this because you have protesters, right? There are people standing up against the system. And um, on page 249, I think her name is, is it Mari? M-A-R-I. Yes. Right. She says, we aren't asking for erasure. We aren't trying to forget the pain of victims. For us, abolition is a positive process. It means creating new infrastructure, new ways of thinking about reducing harm. That's what we're saying. I'm not saying there isn't something to be afraid of. We're saying the thing we fear is already here. So it's wrong not to try to do better. That was such a powerful, powerful paragraph there. You know, it's wrong not to try to do better. Can you just talk about that? Yeah, thank you. Uh, and and I mean, it, I, Mari sort of said it better than I could. And that's the cool thing about writing. You get to revisit an idea over and over and over again and articulate it more precisely than maybe you would be able to in your sort of fumbling lived life. Um, but yet prison, again, sort of fundamentally keeps us from having to try to do better. It's like this, it's like rather than becoming an organized person, you just keep growing your closet, you just throw things in your closet, you just keep throwing things in your closet. <laughs> You got changing your behaviors and your room might still look clean sort of, but like, no, you could change a behavior. That's a very low stakes example to tie to something that's really important. But it's to me, it's there's work in growing a more ethical sort of sense about yourself as an individual and as a community and as a society and as a country and as a planet, as a species. And there's a version that I really believe in which human life is sacred and the government doesn't readily assign or unassign sort of a humane status. I think that it's wrong that slavery is explicitly protected by our constitution in the case of criminals. And I think most of us would agree that. So why can't we do something about it? And I think I know why it's because we're afraid and we we don't have the tools or the vocabulary to deal with the really real fear of harm. When you think when you talk about abolition, there is something to be afraid of. There, there, there are people who are doing incredible things. I mean, incredibly terrible things. Um, and when you're speaking about this book, pretty much just cutting to the chase of murderers, murderers and rapists. What do you do with that? As 
as, I, as you just sort of said, we're not saying not to address those things. We're saying we can actually address those things because what we're doing now isn't enough of a deterrent anyways, because those issues persist. Right. We think about the number of mass mass shootings that are happening pretty much every day in this country. Prison is not addressing it. It is not. Right. There is some, there is, but, there, but I, but abolitionists believe we can address those issues actually by really changing fundamentally how we look at our systems, how we look at our infrastructure, how we give resources to communities of need, how we address the patriarchy and how we think about how we hold each other. Yeah, I love that um, because I think this book and what you're saying now here with us today is right, we're starting the conversation, right? And we need to do better or continuing one that has been started, but making sure that it comes to light, that more people are having this conversation. Um, Absolutely. So your characters really see um, three different worlds. I sort of thought of them as there's the world where they're in the arena, right? When it's kill or be killed. There's the world where they're still on camera, but they're in their sort of their transport, right? Going from one camp to the next or from one arena to the next. They have to sort of like a death march. They have to march and the cameras are on them all the time. And then they have just a few moments every once in a while Right, right after a match, for example, when they're thrown into the back of a van or a couple of hours of blackout, you know, sort of that happen. And the, your characters talk about these moments. We have Stax says, right, when they absorb that time when they're finally off. And she says, Stax, she tried to absorb these moments, these few moments in her life when she was not being observed by hundreds of thousands, but instead- There's only a few uh, something men, right? A few capable was watch of a few weak men. Oh, I love that yeah. you know that so well. <laughs> yeah. Right. A few weak men when there are no cameras floating up her ass, asking her to be the hurricane where she could regret freely. She could hope openly and she could be herself. I love that you show, yeah. right? There are these different sides to everybody. I didn't think you already know this passage. So please talk to me about it. Why do you know it so well, right? Why is it so important to you? That's from the what was originally the first chapter of the book before um, before um, we made the prologue, the prologue, even though we don't call it the prologue because I asked Twitter and I discovered some people don't read the prologue, which is crazy. Right. Um, but yeah, that chapter you're reading is either, I want to say it's the- is Page it, 23. It's either the first or second chapter of the book. And I've, re- I've, I've rewritten it a lot of times because you actually, the question, the, the thing, the way you framed it is actually really right on hitting the, the um, hammer on the head because uh, I wanted to show these sort of phases. Right in the beginning, she's sort of being the hurricane stacks, this master of the ceremony, this violent person, this person who's trying to preach love, but is also administering death because she has to. And then right on the other side of it, she's like this very human, vulnerable person who is aware of the um, nature of her confinement, but trying for something else. And so just from between going from that stadium to that hallway, where she's about to be like sort of interact with um, their war, it's like these other sides. And so I wanted to show like the dynamism of her experience as, as a link really early on. And so I feel like that's part of why I wanted um, that to be, that's why I know it. It's because it was early on. It's our introduction to Stax, who is sort of maybe like the heart of the book in many ways. If not, I mean, Third War and Stax are like the shared heart of the book. And um, I wanted, I, I can't forget it just because it's, um, 
I revise a lot and I've gone through that section hundreds of times. But it, but I just thought it was so um, symbolic or it was there was so much to it because these characters stacks, right? There's there's her real self in those few moments. And in this system, she is only allowed, you know, a, a tiny bit of time to be herself. And that in itself yeah. is cruel. Right. Absolutely. It absolutely is. Yeah. OK, so each of these. I don't know if you want to call them warriors. What do you I don't know how you how do you want to talk about these people that are in links? The links. OK, great. That using the word from the book. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so each of the links has a weapon um, that they have yeah. acquired through different means. And each weapon is named and they, they're characters in and of themselves. Can you talk about that and how you came to that decision to name the weapons? Yeah. So I, I, I think a lot about, first of all, I play video games, so I'm sure that's a background part of it. But also I read manga and I grew up on like comic stuff. And, and to me, as in like the role-playing space, like role-playing game world, it's super standard that like a character has their weapon is almost extension of themselves and will have, will be named as such. And it just, it also goes in line with like the, even in like basketball, for example, like a special move will have a name. You know, if you do like, you know, at Iverson's crossover, there's like the AI crossover, like the in and out, Hezzy, like we have names for moves that we use that, that that identify the way the people we admire in certain, I don't want to call it crafts, but crafts, like the way that they administer their craft in their particular field. We have names for that usually. So it just felt like it would make sense for these weapons, which are really like the lifeblood of these characters for so many reasons, uh, would be yeah. named. Um, I, just, I felt so, like yeah. it was such a contrast. I was hoping you were going to say it had to do with video games, by the way, and comics. Mm -hmm. um, but I felt like there was such a contrast to that. Then they come out of the rink at the end, right? And then um, people are touching them and like, like it, you know, personal places, like putting their hands down the women's shirts, yeah. right? And sort of assaulting them and because they don't have weapons and they're not allowed to fight back. So they go through these sort of moments where they're completely vulnerable. And yet when they have these weapons and they're, you know, conquerors of the world, what a contrast. Absolutely. Because the violence that they're able to administer is owning to each other, you know, uh, which again is because they've been stripped of really their humane status and put into this, this personhood link. There's a chapter called personhood link, which is, you could say personhood criminal or anything else. It's like we have this, we assign, certain statuses to which it's okay for you to be harmed. But also the thing you're describing is really important because the subtext of that is that the institution that has assigned you that personhood is always harming you. Thurwar has a hammer, but she only has a hammer because that hammer is really more like a the electrocution chair or the gallows as is every weapon in changing all-stars. It's just another form of the gallows. If I was smarter, I would have called like the ceremony to which they get the weapons, the gallows, because that's all it is. It's just by another name, by another sort of form. I was in, um, I was in Boise, Idaho recently, and I, so shockingly, for whatever reason, they re they recently reinstated the firing squad for whatever wow. reason. This is what I've been told. Anyways. Mm. It's not that it, it will not be used almost certainly. And, um, but they, re they brought it back. And when I say that people are very yeah. shocked, you know. That that's even a conversation but, that someone would have. Is terrifying. That's even a conversation we'd have. But also, is it really? If you shoot someone with a gun, if you inject lethal poison to them, if you electrocute them, if you hang them, is the government killing people? I think we have a lot of uncomfortability with like uh, the aesthetics of certain types of murder. <laughs> but the government murdering people, to me, is the problem. 
as opposed to like, I think, I mean, it is, it is a symbolic gesture towards just how comfortable maybe it is. And also the fact that how many people have to be involved in the shooting in the firing squad. But to me, those are sort of semantic. It's not, that sounds like very like callous, but I'm saying like the whole practice is violent, whether it's dressed up like this or like that, it's all the same, the same exact violence by a different name. And, um, chain gang is like another extension of that similarly just like wow well, we would never that we would never have uh a firing squad it's like yeah we would because we've done it before and we're doing it now but now we call it lethal injection it's the same yeah. thing and so that's really how i how i think of it and they you can dress it up pretty and you can call give the weapon a name you can have all these things but again as long as you are still comfortable with the paradigm of the government having the infrastructural resources and capacity to murder its citizens you know it's everything's on the yeah. table so a lot of really hard and important things in this book to talk about, to read about. How hard was it to write? Um, very, to say the least. It was hard to write on a craft level just because there's so many voices. And it was also hard to write because some of the things I'm saying now, I'm very confident about because I, by doing the research, you kind of, and also just looking at the world, you could see that our system right now is clearly not, I don't think this is the best we can do. I don't think it's natural and normal for such a high percentage of women to be victims of assault the way they are. I don't said think eighty five percent in the book. I said, yeah, I, I don't I don't think that's I don't think that's like should be the case. I don't think we should have mass shootings every day. I think some people are from the almost believe that the answer is just more police and more prisons. And it's like I I don't think that's how violence works. I don't think you get to put violence to meet violence and, and then just keep growing these infrastructures. I think um, you guys do something else. But that said, I didn't always really feel that because we're taught from a very young age, the answer to a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. The answer to all evil is throw some guy in jail. And so because of that, it was sort of difficult because I had to, it required a certain type of unlearning on my part. It required um, a lot of, it was a trust fall for a long time. Um, I, I had characters I really loved. And they sort of felt like they guided me, particularly third Warren stacks. But um, it, it was really, it was really challenging. So then especially going into the minds of someone like Simon Kraft, extremely challenging and difficult. Yeah. So those are the most, very most disturbing. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. it's an anti-violence book that is all so much violence in it. Right. As your way yeah. to get to that message. And so I just kept thinking this must have been so hard to write at the end of the day or an editing session, like physically exhausting what it must have taken. Well, well, you know, luckily, like the the very, very violent set pieces, to me, this might be more violent, like the quiet, the harshness of the quiet moments that I can actually key in on what's happening with the, because pro, the nature of prose and the and linear text, the choreography of the action scenes is so mechanical almost. For several levels of drafting, I'm almost feel like I'm a mechanic with a car as opposed to like driving mm -hmm. a car, which is a very different experience. That is to say, I am pretty squeamish, actually. It's hard for me sometimes to deal with like violent scenes and anything. But I, for a long time, I felt more like a choreographer blocking out scenes as opposed to someone watching a violent scene happen, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Because it has to, ha you have to make it fresh. Right. And then by the time I got further into the drafting process, it did start feeling that way because I could start, I, I was starting to see what I had made and that did, that was difficult. For yeah, me. but I mean, right, because you um, dug into what made someone like Simon J. Craft, right? Get to that point. 
So the actual yes. scene where he's violent, maybe I can see you're blocking it out, but you dug so far into what made him, what was his life in solitary, right? How was he tortured? Yeah, yeah. What it took to turn him into that? Yeah, and I meant, when, and when I said blocking, I meant like stage blocking. Yeah. Like I was like moving, movement, that part, that kind of blocking. But then, yeah, when I'm getting to like the sort of the quiet mental for, for certain characters, even just being in their mindsets at all, that was very challenging. And so uh, shout out to therapy and, um, you know, <laughs> those type of practices because it was actually extremely essential in uh, getting this book wow. made. All right. So two more uh, quick questions for you before we wrap up. What advice do you have for new writers? Trust that you have something important to say and um, trust that the way you feel inclined to say it, despite whatever the quote unquote market says or it doesn't say, trust that the what you need to say and how you want to say is something valuable that the world needs. I love that. That's really good advice. Also, can you would you share with us what was one of the hardest parts of getting this book published? Where did you have people standing in front of you saying, "No, this is never going to happen. Too much violence." I am very lucky. Well, you know what? Here's what happened. I had a two book deal, so this book was already kind of packaged with my first. Which was book. short stories. So this is your debut now. Which was a short yeah. story collection. So I see, like the the hardest part of getting this book published was getting my first book published. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, was getting people to, which was also violent and full of. Uh, you know, aggressive ways of thinking about different subjects. I didn't have, I'll say this, me and my agent, we went out, many, many, many editors passed on me. I didn't have an auction in America, meaning it, we had one editor, her name was Naomi Gibbs, who took a chance on a weird book that supposedly was not going to do anything and blah, blah, blah. And so if not for... Uh, my agent Meredith Kafal Simonoff and my editor Naomi Gibbs, it's very unlikely that this book would be out and I'd be talking to you right now. So the hard part was um getting people to believe in something they hadn't seen before. And um but now we're here. Nada, I absolutely love that you shared that with us. Thank you, because it just takes one person, right? One person to change the yeah. world, one person to believe in you. One yes. And people say that a lot, but I have experienced it for myself, so I know it to yeah, be. Yeah. So thank you for sharing that. That that's a great thing. All right, Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya, congratulations on Chain Gang All Stars. Here's your beautiful cover. This book was absolutely Thank so phenomenal. Much. Thank you so, so much for joining us today here on Check This Out here at the Howe Library. Thank you to our producers extraordinaire, Megan Coleman and Jared Jenish. They're the people behind the curtain making all the magic happen. Thank you to them. Yes, thank y'all. And we hope that if you love these books that you've listened to during this spring series here at Check This Out, you will go to your library and buy them. Thank you very much to the Howe Library Corporation for having us today and for sponsoring the show. And thank you to the Jack and Dorothy Byrne Foundation also for sponsoring us. We will be back again in the fall. So stay tuned and we will have new dates and new authors coming to you then. Thank you to everyone.